I was thinking this week um, just about some different times in my life that I've been around the beach scene and been around in the ocean. And uh, we have uh, some friends that actually ended up taking us uh, after every one of our kids, about a year after our kids were born, they would take Tina and I on like some fabulous vacation kind of thing. We've, we've gone on cruises. We've stayed at like luxury, what's a all-inclusive like resort, like fancy stuff, places like in the Caribbean or in Cancun or uh, the Mexican Riviera. So sort of on the west side of Mexico over there. I mean, it's still got me thinking, like, maybe we should have more kids. You know, like, like after every kid, we had a fabulous vacation, had these amazing experiences. And so got got some chance to to do some awesome things. We got to do snorkeling. We got to do some scuba diving. Got to be in some of the most breathtaking, beautiful waters in the world. I mean, stuff that uh, I always thought, like... uh, that they were all photoshopped and you see these pictures of people like snorkeling in like this aqua like blue like amazing looking water that you can look down and see the coral reef that's like actually real like people like see that all the time and so uh, amazing kind of opportunities but anyway I was thinking of two in particular I remember I think it might have been the first time I had ever been snorkeling uh, Tina and I uh, went with some friends and we were just checking out kind of going up over top of the coral reef and you're watching fish you're getting to see some eels occasionally there's uh you get to see uh i mean all kinds of cool things maybe a little nurse shark or something kind of swim through different different things like this i think it was in the caribbean uh when we were doing this and uh, i can remember we were just having a ball and like your heads your face is down in the water and you're looking you know all the cool fish and the the pretty colors and and all that kind of stuff of the coral reef and i remember uh there was this moment in which we looked up and we didn't know where we were right we we looked up and we're like where's our hotel where's i mean we were kind of snorkeling off the off of the hotel we're like where are we and come to find out we had unbeknownst to us we'd gotten caught in some currents and it was just washing us at a pretty rapid pace down the coastline and we were probably already a mile or more away from our hotel and it occurred to us pretty quickly we, we better make for the beach or we're going to have miles and miles to gotta to kind of get back to to be able to find our resort and it was it was crazy because all we had done is nothing we were just in the water we thought we were pretty much static we thought we were in one place but unbeknownst to us the currents had started washing us away and we were getting further and further and further from where we thought we were and where we wanted to be. Another time, I remember, uh, it was the first time we'd ever gone scuba diving. We got, again, we were with these friends of ours. They had made all the arrangements. And they're like, you're going to love it. They've been on like, I don't know, a gazillion uh, dives. They've done them at night and shark dives. They've done the whole thing. We did not do any of those. We just did like a nice little, like pretty uh, shallow kind of dive. Uh, but they had told us about how amazing it was and how, again, you could kind of hu- just kind of hover over the coral reef and you bar- you just kind of sit there. You'd barely have to just, uh, you know, use your flippers just to kind of go a little ways and you'd get the balance all worked out and kind of go along. And so we were doing this. I was super excited, again, to see uh, that kind of uh, animal life up close and the beautiful fish and the, I mean... How cool is that, right? Kind of a dream come true. What we didn't know um, was that on that particular day, again, there were some pretty significant currents. And so I'm expecting this serene and peaceful little float above the, above the coral reef. And in reality, there are currents. They're sucking us back. Occasionally, I'd be, we'd be going along, and they were so significant. I got slammed into the reef a, a few times, which if you know anything about that, like I was bleeding. Like I got cut, and it was, I mean, it was, it was, I mean you, you'd go look for something and we get jostled around we didn't know but that day there was an undertow that was at work that kept sucking us away from where we wanted to be some 
Sometimes it would suck you backwards. Sometimes it would slam you up against uh, the reef. It was, it was crazy. And as a result, I ended up hurt. It did pretty significant damage. Well, there are different currents at work in the ocean, aren't there? Some of them kind of sweep you away and you may not even realize it. Some, some currents try to pull, kind of pull your feet out from under you. They try to suck you under, so to speak. They can be dangerous. And if we're not careful, it can cost you your life. Well, this morning we are launching a new series here at Ignite called Undertow. Because like the ocean, our culture is full of currents that are capable of sweeping us away and pulling us under. And if we're not careful, they can do tremendous damage in our lives and in our own souls and in our own hearts. Some of these currents that we're seeing today are political, right? Any political currents going on out there? Some of them may be uh, moral. Some of them might be spiritual. The Bible actually talks quite a bit about the spiritual tides that are warring against us. Whether you know it or not, these currents are pulling at you every day, every place that you go, every time you turn on the radio or watch the news. When you open up Facebook, tell me there are not tides warring for your attention and trying to sway you in one direction or the other. They are uh, there when we connect with friends. Those tides and those currents are washing against us when we're in the classroom, when we go to work, virtually any place we go. There are tides and there are currents that are fighting against you. And if you're not careful, it is so easy for us to get swept away. It's so easy for us, maybe even without knowing it, to end up drifting further and further and further from God, further and further from the life that God has for us, further and further from the life that you and I were born for. You know, I was doing a little bit of research this week, and I was actually blown away. I know the Bible talks about standing firm in our faith, but I was actually a little bit blown away. I looked up all of them, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures in different places throughout God's book that keep telling us again and again and again to stand firm, right, in our faith, to stand on God's word, to stand with Christ, to stand over and over. Let me just give you a hodgepodge, because I think it's pretty compelling to look at. And I want you to think about as we're looking at this, why? Why would God, why would God say this again and again and again? Listen to some of these. Ephesians 6, 13 through 14 uh, says this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, what does that say? Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. And he goes on and talks more about the full armor of God. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, be alert and sober minded for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that uh, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen puts it this way. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Philippians 4.1, I got just a few more here, stick with me. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Matthew 24 is the next one. Uh, This is straight from the lips of Jesus. He says, Because of the increase of wickedness, he's talking about in the last days, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Two more. James 5.8 says, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And 1 Corinthians 15.58 puts it this way, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now the question is, why do you think God is so concerned with us learning to stand in our faith, with continuing to stand on his truth, continuing to stand in the ways that we live our lives for him? Why do you think he's so concerned about that? Come on, it's okay to talk in church. What do you think? Right? Is it because potentially it's so easy for us to get swept away? Is it so, because it's so easy for us, there's a current, so to speak, that's trying to knock us off of our feet, that's trying to get us to drift from his truth and from the life of God. There is an undertow, so to speak, a pull away from the things of God, away from his truth, away even from his presence and his peace. And if we are not on our guard, it is so easy for us to slip away, for us to drift and even get pulled under at times. I've heard a lot of people uh, over the last few weeks uh, in talking about the current political climate kind of say, you know, and even thinking about the choices that we have of candidates say, how did we get here, right? Anybody ever thought that? <laughs> with, with, you, know, you end up with, uh, you know, with Hillary Clinton or with Trump, and you look at our candidates and you think, how in the world do we end up with these two? I mean, how are these our representatives? How did we get here? And let me suggest to you, and I'm not going to get go all political on you today, but can I suggest to you that uh, this didn't just happen overnight? I'm not so sure that we would, they would have been our candidates 50 or 100 years ago, but there has been some drifting that has happened to all of us in our culture some, some ways in which we have probably switched values, some ways that we've decided, you know what, character doesn't really matter that much. Just, it's just a matter of getting the thing done. Ways that we have sort of drifted as a culture that, have, that has led us to our current situation. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the, in, in the upcoming weeks. But I would say, you know what, although we'd like to make everything about them, about our political candidates, those people out there, I think it also communicates some things about our own drift as a culture and as a society that it's going to make us, it should make us take kind of a second look. But there's, there's a drift that's been happening in our world. There's a drift that happens in our lives. This morning, I'm just going to do kind of an introductory, introductory kind of message, just introducing the topic. And I'm calling this week's uh, message the mob mentality because, man, that's what I see everywhere I look in our culture these days. We are a divided country, aren't we? Racially Man, there's, there's a ton of division that's going on. There are currents sweeping us to extremes, and we can stand there yelling and accusing and pointing fingers at one another. Politically, again, we're divided. I read a stat this week that was fascinating to me that said 41% of Democrats think Republicans are a threat to the nation, and 45% of Republicans think Democrats are a threat to the nation. Now, that's interesting. It's not just saying, no, we disagree on current things. They're saying, man, if they get in office, it's over. I've heard, I've heard people use end of the world kind of language for this kind of thing. The apocalypse is coming. If, my, if the other side gets us, it's the end of the world. It's all over. You might as well write it off. And, and likewise, the other way, we are divided drastically, aren't we? It's not just we disagree on things. It's, it's we are opposed to each other. There's, there's a tension. There's a division that's happening all throughout our country. Politically, it's happening, but it's not just that. Rich and poor are divided. White collar and blue collar, Muslim and non-Muslim, gay and non-gay, men and women and transgender. There's tremendous division all the way around every issue. 
We tend to stereotype each other. Somebody speaks out. We tend to side up and jump on the bandwagon. And all of a sudden, we are at odds. We are yelling and hating and divided from one another. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is open up your Facebook feed, right, to see it. It is so clear, polarizing more and more, division between one another, hatred towards each other. We have been swept away. And it seems like more and more that happens every day. We get swept away by the mob, swept away by the bandwagon. And as a result, we are isolating and we are separating and dividing ourselves from one another. As we were prepping a series and prepping this message, I had two different um, kind of scriptures and two different examples from the Bible come to mind uh, to me about this whole uh, mob mentality that I think we can learn from. And the first one uh, is, comes from the book of Acts, and it involves Paul, sort of one of the great leaders of the early church, who, uh, after coming to Christ later in life, uh, started bunches of churches, spread the message of Jesus uh, pretty much throughout the country to all the Gentiles, th- throughout the world at that time, to all the Gentiles. And uh, in this particular instance, he had gone to the city of Ephesus. He had lived there for two years, and he had told it says virtually the entire city had heard about the good news of Jesus, had heard that there is new life, there's forgiveness for your past, there's restoration to God, right? All of this is available because of Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it says, actually, in, in this story, at the beginning of the story, it even talks about uh, God was doing miracles through the Apostle Paul. They're incredible kinds of things. People were being healed. People that had been uh, under demonic sort of oppression were stepping into freedom for the first time. Lives were being transformed as people met Jesus. They were were coming to life in some amazing kinds of ways. And so there's life change happening. All this stuff is going on. But there were a few. There were some who refused to believe. One of them was a silversmith named Demetrius. He ends up getting angry because... uh, Pretty much what he does for a living is he builds idols to false gods, right? He builds idols for people that people would buy and put in their homes and would worship and would cry out to and that kind of thing. And as people in the city, as Paul is preaching the good news about Jesus, people are turning to Christ and they're realizing, you know what those idols? They're worthless. Those aren't even real gods. They're they're discovering that they have found life in the one true God, right? And so they quit buying these idols and it's cost, it's hitting these guys where it hurts, right? It's costing them money. And so this, this silversmith starts getting angry. <laughs> and he's saying, man, they're ruining my livelihood. And so he gets some other tradesmen that kind of build idols for a living. He gets them all together, and he's, he kind of holds this meeting and starts saying, man, what? they're stealing our livelihood. They're stirring up trouble, this kind of thing. And then he, he kind of brings it to a head when he says, and not only that, but he says, uh, they're going to end up, uh, what's the name? Sorry. They're going to, but he, they're saying they're going to end up turning people away from Artemis, who is the goddess of the city, and she will end up getting discredited. That's what our whole city is founded on. There's a huge statue there uh, that they, they, they had said at that time. The statue just magically fell from heaven, right? And so it was the god Artemis, the god of Ephesus, the god of the Ephesians. And so uh, that was sort of. That's, that's who they were. That was sort of part of their identity. And, and so when, when, when uh, 
he said that they're going to end up discrediting Artemis, sort of the goddess of our city. The people started to get worked up into the mob mentality. They started an uproar. And this is where we'll pick up the story. Acts 19, starting with verse 28. It says this, when they heard this, when the people heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon, it says, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. He wanted to probably bring the gospel, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent, sent a message uh, to him, begging him not to venture into the theater. Now, I want you to listen to these next couple of verses. Uh, verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there, right? I love this because I think, man, this is the mob mentality, isn't it? It's the mob mentality. We are mad as heck, and they are to blame, right? I mean, people are yelling and shouting different things, and we're taking, we're taking all of our frustrations out on somebody else because of our lot in life. It's their fault. It's their fault. And it says, but it says, but the most of them? They were, they were mad, they were yelling, they, were there. they didn't even know why they were there. Like, well, what is this even all about? It's the mob mentality. The people have been swept away by the mob. The other example I was thinking about this week, and probably the most clear one in Scripture that I can think of, uh, comes leading up to the Easter story, right? The last week of Jesus' life. Um, he enters, uh, he's heading to Jerusalem and enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You guys remember the story? You might have heard it in Sunday school. Had some nice little flannel graph pictures at some point along the way. But uh, there's a picture. Jesus comes riding on a donkey into town and the people start praising God. We'll pick it up here. Matthew 21, verse, uh, verses six through 11. Since the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them uh, for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. I mean, it's an it's a expression that means save us. Save us. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the, you're the one that is coming to save us. We believe you're God. It's sort of a, a, a proclamation of praise. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus. He's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. If you jump ahead in the story, just a few days, right? Later that week, we see another mob that is formed, probably made up of, of many of the same people. And I want you just to look at the response here. This comes from Matthew 27, 15 through 18 says this. It says, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At this point, uh, Jesus had already been arrested. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was uh, Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest. It was out of envy that the priests had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priests and the elders, elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? The chosen one, right? Pilate, Pilate asked and they all answered, crucify him. 
Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the, all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead that an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. I just found that picture so intriguing this week, right? It's a, it's, it's a picture of two crowds, right? In the same city, three or four days apart from each other. Probably made up of many of the same people. On one particular day, people got swept away by the crowd and they're yelling out, Hosanna, it's the Savior, the one who has come to rescue the people, who has come to rescue us and to set us free and to bring us and usher us into a new season of life. Blessed are you, Jesus. And they're waving palm branches and their kids are catching a glimpse of him. He's riding in on a donkey and they're saying, man, this is the Messiah, this is the chosen one. And just a few days later, the same people again, swayed by the crowd are saying, crucify him, kill him, take his life. Even Pilate is recognized and saying, this guy's innocent. He has done nothing wrong. This Jesus guy is innocent. Why should I kill him? But they yell louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. It's the mob mentality. And can I just say, it can so easily sweep us away. I think we, we like to think of ourselves as rugged individualists that can stand despite the storm, but I think the studies, the stats, and the reality of our lives would tell us something very, very different. All of us can and are swept away. We're pulled at by the currents of our culture, by the, by the currents of the mob around us, and that's what I want us to look at today. I'm just going to real quick look at uh, three different things. I want us to look at briefly the lure of the mob. I want us to talk about and look at the loss associated when we follow the mob. And then I want to spend a few minutes talking about the solution and how we can learn to stand. Kind of the first steps. Again, it's an introduction, right? <laughs> Can't get at all of it today, but it's an introduction. To what are, what's the sort of the foundational step of learning to stand despite, this, despite the current, despite the pull? All right, so that's where we're going, the lure of the, the mob. Uh, this, is, this is fascinating to me. This, listen to this uh, study that I ran across. Uh, it's from a psychologist named uh, Ruth Berenda and her associates. They carried out an interesting study, an experiment. They started with teenagers and then uh, expanded it to all kinds of kids as well. But they, it was a study to see how people handled group pressure, the currents of sort of the mob mentality. The plan was simple. They divided uh, these teenagers into groups of 10, okay? And they would bring them into a room and they had three different tests and the, the test consisted of this. They had four different sized lines uh, on, on a, basically, a, what do you call those? Those big boards with paper, what do you call it? Flip chart, yeah, flip chart. And, uh, and they would just, they said, well, here's, it's gonna be real simple. When, when, we, when we point to the longest line, we want you to raise your hand and identify that's the longest line, okay? Pretty simple. What they didn't know, what, what not everybody knew anyway, was that they took nine of the 10 kids into this room beforehand and said, okay, here's the deal. Instead of voting for the longest line, we want you to vote for the second longest line, the, you know, the, the one shorter to that. And so the study was actually, unbeknownst to them, was to study the reaction of the 10th kid. 
So you kind of see what's happening here? And so one after the other after the, I mean, they did this group after group after group, and they had a series of three tests for each one. And each time, uh, they had the nine kids uh, raise their hand for the second longest line. So they'd bring the first group in, and they said what they found over and over is the same kind of experience. Like, they would ask, they'd get to the second longest line, and nine of the ten kids would raise their hand. The tenth kid, they call him the stooge, right, would kind of look around, would kind of make a confused look on his face, or his or her face, and would, would suddenly slip their hand up. They found 75% of the time that we would rather go along with the crowd and vote for something we know is completely not true rather than be the only one to stand out on our own. 75% of the time. This was their conclusion. This is what the, uh, the researchers wrote. They said, some people would rather be president than be right. And I thought, man, that's our experience, isn't it? Does that, does that strike you as true? Some people would rather be present. They would rather be popular than right. 75% of the time. And they did this on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. There's an enormous sort of lure to follow the crowd in our culture. We want to fit in. We want to have friends. We want to be liked. We don't want to be the idiot. We want to be normal. We want to be loved and accepted. And we think that if we follow the crowd, then we'll get those things. We think that if we'll, you know, if we'll change, if we'll do what they do, if we'll say what they say, if we'll wear what they wear, then we'll fit in and we'll have some of those kinds of things. The crowd got riled up in both of those passages, both of those stories that we just read. And almost everyone except Jesus and a couple of his followers ended up following the crowd. Even the governor in the land, Pilate, I I thought that was fascinating. Even the governor, the one who held power, who held authority, the one who had the ultimate decision, right? You You think he had a shortage of friends? You think he had a shortage? I mean, he was rich. He was successful. He was all the things that you're supposed to be. Even he was swayed by the crowd, wasn't he? He was, he was trying to argue, what, what crime has this Jesus committed? And yet he was sucking along. He, he tried to make himself feel better by washing his hands of it. But really, what was he doing? Giving in to the crowd. There is an enormous lure in our, an allure, I should say, even in our culture that sweeps at us day by day, pulling us along the tide of culture, saying, would you fit in? Would you... Would you do this? Would you, would you just be like us kind of thing? And so often we go and we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. And I get it, right? I mean, who wants to be the only one? Who wants to stand alone, especially on unpopular sort of decisions? Friends, the lure of the crowd is powerful. It's tempting, and we need to be aware. I think sometimes it's even helpful for us to admit it, that, we can, that we're tempted by that, that there is a, a pull on us. I think sometimes it's helpful even just to acknowledge that and say, so, you know what, it's true of all of us. It's not true of just a few. We can be tempted and we are lured by the mob. Second one I just want to talk about quickly again is the loss. Following the crowd almost always leads to loss and disappointment, maybe even embarrassment. I mean, think about what happened as a result of the mob in the Jesus story that we just read. Think about it. An innocent man was murdered. A murderer, Barabbas, was set free. They beat up the Son of God. They killed him and uh, the one who made them. They whipped the one who loved him enough to die for him. And they crucified the one who came to bring him life. There's tremendous loss. 
Think about Peter uh, those last few days uh, as, as Jesus was arrested and hauled away. Peter didn't want to be the one that stood, that stood for Christ, and so he denied him three times. And the rooster crowed, and the Bible says he went outside and wept bitterly. Was there loss? Was there regret? Was there disappointment? Was there heartbreak? Absolutely. Think about Judas who got swept away by the tides of the religious leaders in that day and the religious culture. And so he got caught into a plot that actually cost Jesus his life. And as a result, at the, on the other end of it, he realizes what he's done. And there's regret. Ends up even taking his own life. There's a huge cost. I mean, think about the mob in Ephesus started by the silversmith, the one we just read a, a little bit earlier. They get so worked up by the mob. They get so worked up about losing prophets and their, their false god and idol of their city that they miss out on the gospel of Jesus. They missed out on the best news ever proclaimed, that there is forgiveness and new life, that there's restoration with God. They can come back home to the one true living God. They miss the new life that God had for them because they got swept away by the mob. There is a cost that comes when we, when we just drift and when we get pulled under and swept away by this sort of mob mentality. Following the crowd leads to pain. It leads to suffering. It leads to embarrassment sometimes, and it leads to loss. And I think we know this intuitively and even experientially. All of us can probably remember times when we went along with the crowd and we got burnt and we regretted it later. It could be that you look back and you can remember a time that you went along with the crowd and you started drinking something that you shouldn't have been drinking or maybe more than you should have been drinking and you got slammed and you did something stupid that you've regretted for days or months or years or decades. When we lived in Northeast Wisconsin, that was the culture up there, man. Everybody had stories like that. Almost, I mean, most couple stories started out with, oh yeah, I was married before and then I got drunk and this happened, right? And we got divorced and so then I met this person. Like, this is how the stories go, right? Stories of hardship, of regret, of the pain that comes when they've gotten swept away by the culture, swept away by the mob. Maybe there was a time when you tried a drug or got hooked on something, and more than anything, you regretted that later because you want to be free. It could be something as simple as cigarettes. Like, why in the world did I ever start that, and now I can't be free? Maybe you kind of went along with the crowd and you started fudging a little bit at work. Maybe shortcutting some things or just, you know, maybe not fully giving the truth to your boss or, or whatever. But, but you've kind of convinced yourself, man, it's, it's, everybody does that. Sort of just the tide of, that's how, that's how you get ahead in business. That's just sort of how it works. And now you live with regret. Maybe you were found out. And the consequences were more, there's a cost to do it. Maybe it cost you your character. Maybe, maybe you've just shortcutted some IRS forms, right? When you're paying taxes. Man, who will know? This is the way the world works. But man, there's a cost. There's a cost to our soul. There's a cost to our character. I mean, sometimes it costs us relationships. Sometimes it costs us marriages. Sometimes it costs us the respect of our kids or our wife or our friends or those closest to it because we've just gotten swept away by, by how the world works, by how culture goes, by the mob even. And all that's left at the end is regret because following the mob 
getting swept away by those tides always leads to loss. So let's talk about the solution for just a minute here. Matthew, I was looking at this. Uh, this is a classic uh, example of this. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Let me just read this. It's Jesus teaching here. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and he puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. (laughs) It's a picture that Jesus is painting of one person who learned to stand and another one whose life got pulled out from under him and was utterly destroyed. Two pictures, right? The first picture, Jesus says, man, if you are like a wise person and you build your life around me and my truth and my, right, my wisdom, my words, if you build your life on that stuff, you will stand when the storms come, when the currents pull against you, you will be able to stand your ground. But he says, likewise, if you kind of just do it your own way, if you kind of just go with the flow, if you kind of just build it on anything else, it's like building on the sand. And when the currents come, when the storms come, the waves hit, you will be swept away. Can I tell you what this uh, isn't talking about? This passage isn't just talking about uh, choosing a scripture or two to try and make, make it sound like the Bible proves in what you already wanted to do. Does that make sense? It's not just a, a self-justifying kind of thing. If I ever, I, man, I get so sick of hearing people do this. People on opposite sides of the issue that both use the Bible to justify how they're, how they're living, just justifying what they wanted to do in the first place. Right? It's all, you hear all the, all the time in, in culture, you'll hear people say things like, well, God is loving and forgiving, which are those true? Yes. Yes. But is that all of who God is? No. no right? And so they'll, they'll say, well, God is loving and forgiving, therefore, and then they'll just put in whatever it is they want to do anyway, right? Therefore, I think he wants me to be happy, and so I'm going to go and live with this other person that's not my spouse, right? And you're like, what? Like that, that is not what we're talking about. That is still building on the sand. That is not building your life around. Here's the word that kept coming to mind for me uh, this, this, this week. It's, it's not just uh, building it on a scripture. It's building our lives on what, what the, used to be called the whole counsel of God, right? The whole of who God is and what he wants for our lives. Not just picking and choosing, not like a smorgasbord, right? Saying, well, I want a little bit of God's love and his mercy and forgiveness and then I don't want any of that like truth and all that kind of you know stuff that he, he can keep that I want to just live my way that is still building on the sand but he says but the wise person is one who comes to God and says God how do you want me to live my life and takes these words and puts them into practice and builds their life on his truth and on his presence and on his wisdom he says that is the person who can stand no matter what, no matter what comes. 
man, it's the first step. It's the solution is living our lives in such a way that, that Jesus is our focus, that he is the primary one in our lives, the one that we built, build our lives around, that we seek to please him more than anything else, more than anyone else, building our lives on his counsel, on his wisdom, on his word. If God's values and our values as a culture don't line up, which one, is, which one needs changing? Yeah? So if God says, for instance, that if God's word says that sex is always reserved for one man and one, one woman in the context of marriage, that's the only place this should really be practiced. If that makes us feel uncomfortable... Any part of that, right? Could be the man-woman part makes us feel uncomfortable. It could be in the context of marriage. That makes us feel uncomfortable. If, if that doesn't jive with who we are, which one of us is wrong? Now, now, I'm, now I'm meddling, right? Now we're meddling. But I, that's, that's what we're saying, right? If, if the way the cultural tide is going and what God's word says, the whole counsel of God, what he says, are at odds with each other, then the wise person who builds their life, who says, you know what? It doesn't feel right necessarily to me. It's not what I see when I scan around me. But God, I'm going to trust that, that your word is right and I'm going to build my life on this. He says, that's the wise person. That is the one who can stand no matter what. Jesus talking again in Matthew 10, uh, 39 says this, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's kind of a confusing passage. It leaves you kind of scratching your head, but this is what he's talking about, right? When we kind of go our own way and kind of, this is the life that I want, the values that I'm going to live this way, you'll be swept away but those who find their life in me, right, who lose their life for my sake, who discover who they are and the life that I have, they will be able to stand. They will find life. I thought it was fascinating, again, thinking about Jesus and his ability to, uh, I mean, he was the only one that stood in that passage. He's under the death sentence and he's the one that stands. He's the one that's not washed away by the mob. And I was thinking about it this week and thinking of John 5.30. This is the reason why he was able to stand. John 5.30 puts it this way. Jesus says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It's the key. You know, he said, I'm building my life. I'm living my life, not for the whims of the crowd, not to necessarily be liked or just sort of get my kudos from conforming to everybody else. He said, I'm living my life for God, for the Father. That's where everything good comes from. I'm going to live with him. I'm going to build my life around him. And as a result, I will be able to stand. Well, friends, I don't know where you're at with God this week. I'm not sure what's happening. But I'll tell you what. Um, it, it could be that some of us are here this morning. And, and maybe the truth be told, we've just been sort of being swept along. We've been just living with whatever, you know, going after money, going after pleasure, going after our own stuff, and we've been swept away. We've been living, I mean, truth be told, we maybe been sprinkling in a little bit of Jesus here or there, a little bit of God's truth. We might believe in God, but we have been living our lives our own way. And maybe today, uh, the living God is speaking to you and saying, you know what? <laughs> you will get swept away. There's loss if you keep going that way. But today can be the day when you turn to him and you say, Jesus, would you forgive me? 
Right? I, have, I have gone my own way. I have gone the way of culture. I have made a mess of things. I have paid the price. It has not worked out the way I wanted it to. So would you come? Would you forgive me? And from this point forward, would you teach me and lead me? Teach me to build my life around you and your truth and your word so that I can stand. If you've never done that before, friends, I would encourage you, do it today. Just open up your heart to him and cry out, I need you, Jesus. Would you forgive me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? I am yours. Maybe you've prayed that prayer before, but the reality uh, of your experience is you find yourself getting kicked back and round by the currents. Maybe you felt like you've been sucked under. Maybe you've been pushed downstream by the wind and waves of culture and maybe this morning as well, God is just speaking and saying, you know, there's a fresh start. There's grace and forgiveness for you if you would turn back home this morning. If you would just again cry out, God, would you forgive me again? Would you teach me to live and to walk in your truth? Maybe this morning there's a, an area or two of your life that you've been trying to hold God out of, right? Kind of, no, God, this is mine kind of thing. And you've been picking and choosing some of the scriptures and maybe God's encouraging you this morning to embrace the whole counsel of God to sort of lay down and surrender uh, those things that you've been holding back so that you can stand and build your life on the rock so that your life could be unshakable even in the midst of the mob, even in the midst of the culture. And maybe today he's just calling you back home and saying, you know, would, you, would you live this way? Would you put me in the center? Would you put me first? Would you build your life around my truth? You will not be sorry. Well, friends, that's our introductory message. I hope you can join us for the next three weeks as we get real specific about how to live this stuff out in different areas and different parts of our lives. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your love. Thank you for your truth and your wisdom. And Lord, we want to be wise people. We want to be like the wise man or the wise woman who builds their lives in such a way that they are able to withstand and to stand the tides and the undertow of life. God, I pray that uh, even here today that you would um, wash away our sins, that you would draw our hearts and our eyes to Jesus, that we could just cry out to you in our souls this morning. God, I need you. Would you come and wash me and forgive me? Would you plant me? Would you lead me and guide me and be my God? Would you teach me how to live my life in such a way that it is built on your word and the whole counsel of your truth? Would you teach us to stand? Forgive us for times we've gone our own way cleanse us and lead us from this point forward. God, we need you. We want you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in me and in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.